Welcome to this installment of our New Books in the Arts and Sciences panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia University's Dean of Humanities and School of Arts and Sciences and the Heyman Center for the Humanities and the Society of Fellows. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Columbia's John Dewey Professor of Philosophy, Philip Kitcher, and Massachusetts Institute of Technology Professor Emerita of the History and Philosophy of Science, Evelyn Fox Keller's book, The Season's Altar. How to Save Our Planet in Six Acts. Philip and Evelyn's book takes the form of a series of dialogues, and this unconventional structure was the focus of the panel. First, I'll bring you the comments Maxwell M. Geffen Professor of Medical and Scientific Journalism John Wiener made at the panel about the history of dialogues in science writing. Well, it's my pleasure, Philip. Thank you so much for uh, the honor of uh, uh, the invitation to be on this panel. I uh, I was struck the moment you handed me the, the galleys by the form that you had chosen for, for your book, that, uh, that you and uh, Evelyn Fox Keller had decided that uh, you would cast it in a dialogue form. And that, for anyone who knows the, uh, the, the history of uh, attempts to communicate science, that's a really interesting and resonant choice. You go back uh, immediately to the ancients, and you think of Plato and and those uh, formative dialogues. I, I think probably we would all think of that as a science writer, as someone who's been writing about science uh, uh, for for an entire career. I think of a, a hero in the dialogue form who might be a little bit less familiar to uh, to many, Lucretius. Lucretius wrote an epic poem at the time of Julius Caesar called The Way Things Are, or On the Nature of Things. It's not explicitly cast as a dialogue, um, but it is uh, uh, framed as a conversation with a powerful Roman um, patron who may not appreciate the significance of the great idea that the universe is made out of atoms. And the whole thing is Lucretius, the Roman poet, talking to this, to this powerful, wealthy Roman and explaining the significance. And so it's implicitly a dialogue like the, con- the, the conversation that you two have constructed between the uh, between uh, Joe and Joe, who uh, who disagree peacefully about climate change, and if you go flash ahead uh, a millennium, you come to uh, the famous dialogues of Galileo, and we all are familiar with those. But again, as a science writer, I have a favorite uh, dialogue that's a little bit more obscure. Uh, uh, from uh, the Age of Enlightenment, Bernard de Fontenelle. Anybody ever? Yeah, I see a few people nodding. Wonderful, charming dialogue that Fontenelle frames as a conversation between himself and, again, a wealthy patron, a woman who is fascinated by the new science of astronomy. 
and he's explaining and he's singing the uh, the praises of the new science. It's called on the plurality conversations on the plurality of worlds, and uh, it ends really beautifully. It ends by his saying to her, his his patroness, uh, uh, "I would be honored." If when you look at the stars, you think of me, that's a very, very kind of uh, uh, French gallant ending. <laughs> so, uh, to choose this form in, and uh, and frame a popular book about climate change, such a fraught topic, is really a bold one. It has, this, it has this historical depth and, and resonance, and it also has enormous practical utility for any of us who have struggled through those conversations. And probably there, we're all on the same ground. Uh, we probably all have had conversations like this, which have gone well or badly, and probably many of them have gone badly. Uh, Back in the 1980s, when a strong consensus first formed among scientists about uh, global warming, uh, there had been concern already, but this is when a very strong consensus came together. Uh, I was one of those who started hanging around with the climate scientists and following their work very carefully and trying to write a popular book that would call the world's attention to uh, to what looked to be the biggest problem of the next 100 years. And I wrote a book called The Next 100 Years. And I agonized over the, how to make it a, a book that would be read by skeptics as well as by people in the field and really couldn't solve that problem. I couldn't figure out how to do it. And could I, would I write it in a cold clinical way? Would I write it in an angry polemical way? Would I be writing it to pull the bell rope? Uh, and the book ended up being, I think, probably all of that, all of the above. At the same time, a, um, a writer named Bill McKibben uh, wrote a book in which he just went straight for that bell rope. Uh, his book, The End of Nature, was a very successful attempt, I think, at ringing that, ringing that alarm, sounding that alarm. But did either of those books or any of the others in the flood from the 80s make a difference in Keeling's curve, the rise of CO2 uh, from that day to this? It's exasperating, it's frustrating, it's sometimes terrifying to watch that buildup of carbon dioxide continue in spite of so many efforts to, to communicate. And so I think it's just a beautiful thing that uh, Philip and Evelyn have taken this approach because they've explicitly voiced both sides of this conversation. Uh, if it's not too... Um, uh, what hoity-toity uh, to, quote, to quote a philosopher here Heidegger said uh, that all life is conversation and uh, whether a book is framed as a dialogue or it's framed as a, uh, a single exhortation from the podium in effect it's conversation and what they've done here in this book is they have dissected 
the, uh, the, the pitfalls, the philosophical pitfalls that we tend to fall into again and again and again in trying to have these conversations. And I think it's really helpful. I think uh, for anyone who is uh, struggling to communicate these issues now uh, and goes to meetings like, uh, like the one you just went to uh, for Earth Day, uh, there's a lot of wisdom and, uh, and guidance to be found here. So uh, I thank you both for, uh, for the writing of it, and, uh, and Godspeed with the book. Now, we'll hear Evelyn's and Philip's words from the panel about the problems of information the book tackles. Now I'm going to ask Evelyn if she'd like to say a few words. Very few, very few. <laughs> I just want to say that I first became preoccupied by the problem of climate change uh, in the, oh, you know, uh, about uh, almost 15 years ago now. Uh, and I was particularly preoccupied with the, uh, the influence of the climate, of the, de- of, the de- of the deniers, of the denial movement, and the spread of disinformation. And the question of what to do about that is the obvious question. And I, uh, and I'm trained as a scientist. The answer is the equally obvious. You counter with information, with proper information. Uh, You counter with facts. Well, and that seemed to, that task in the first instance seemed to fall, seemed to me to fall to the climate scientists themselves who are, uh, who who know the most about the, the, uh, the facts of the matter, as it were. Uh, and but how? What should the climate scientists be doing? What is their role? How how should they communicate their knowledge? What is their responsibility? And I developed arguments for the responsibility of climate scientists to engage in what many people insist is a political issue, and it is a political issue, but it's also a scientific issue. Uh, but the question of how to communicate was left hanging. Uh, the answer that. Uh, the stock answer in trade for scientists is we have to increase scientific literacy. Well, it was obvious to me that scientific literacy is a very problematic, seemed to me a very problematic notion, and that we had to, that, that, that very notion needed to be re-examined. But I, and I soon realized, became aware of, the, of all the ways in which, or many of the ways in which the spread of information, real information, is not so easy. After all, how do we distinguish between information and disinformation? Uh, how do we uh, distinguish facts from alternative facts? How do we decide when something is true enough? And interestingly, it became clear to me that our efforts were not really making very much progress, that people tend to believe what they want to believe, what their friends and neighbors believe, and even when persuaded on, about certain facts or other, they fail to, they remain unwilling to act on these facts. That is to say, we have not succeeded as scientists or philosophers, or uh, we have not succeeded in reaching the people that need to be reached. This is ultimately a political problem, and it's not going to be solved in any there's no other way to solve it but to engage the world in the seriousness and urgency of the problem. How to do that? 
how to get through to people who are, whose instinct is to just turn their heads or shut, shut their ears or shut their eyes. Uh, how do we persuade, and even when we can get through on, basis, uh, on certain basic facts, how can we persuade them of the urgency? How can we make them feel the urgency of the problem? And clearly, we need you see, clear, we need new ways of engaging. We need uh, to engage, be able to engage people emotionally, uh, not and intellectually. That we need to we need to rouse people. We need to get to them. And my first, we need to learn how to talk to people in a way that they can hear, that they can listen, and they can respond to. And one of my first thoughts was. We need to invoke, we, we need the power of fear. That fear is a very powerful uh, uh, mechanism for engaging people, for arousing them. But of course, uh, fear has, is double-sided. Uh, that it, it's a two-edged sword. It, back, it, it backfires and the need to, people will back off more, will close their eyes, close their ears. Well, Philip had another idea, one that grows, I think, directly out of his deep-seated confidence in the power of rationality, namely <laughs> the use of dialogue. And dialogue, not between adversaries, but between well-meaning people who hold different beliefs or even when sharing beliefs draw different conclusions, different consequences. Dialogue that illustrates how to talk to each other across these differences in beliefs and, and conclusions. Uh, dialogue that demonstrates the power of talking, especially of talking about one of the most urgent crises that confront us today. So I want to just thank Philip for, all his, for, that, for that basic idea and for all the work that went into developing this model of communication. Evelyn is, as always, too modest. Um, it was Evelyn who, who saw uh, the need for thinking about conversations, growing grassroots movements, getting together, getting beyond the, the, the loud clamor of our public debate and constructive conversation uh, between individuals who like and respect and maybe even love one another. Finally, I'd like to bring you a portion of one of the dialogues read aloud at the panel. First, you'll hear Philip introducing the dialogue and its performers. With a dialogue from a much later chapter involving a young woman activist from Nigeria who comes to the office of some very um, uh, well-intentioned man in the affluent world, who is putting together deals between um, entrepreneurs in the affluent world and uh, the developing world to um, you know, set up things using green energy. And uh, this will be read by um, Robbie Kubala, who is a graduate student in philosophy, and Indigo Gomina. Um, Robbie is also a preceptor in the Palm, and Indigo is <laughs> you can imagine how excited I was when I saw your message. But perhaps I should say 
from the beginning, that's not quite our sphere of operations. We don't deal so much with politicians. The aim is to work around that process, with all its tangles, special interests, forced trading on votes. We think we can help most by dealing directly with investors and trying to guide them to ventures that will do good. We want to encourage them to boost economies like yours in ways that also limit climate change. Our strategy is to identify places in the developing world where local groups might enter into profitable partnerships with corporations, and sometimes foundations, in affluent countries. We try to help them discover possibilities for the benefit of all of both. Some development, some economic growth for us, profits for them. Yes. From what I've heard, and we've already said, you seem to want something more radical. I do. We do. Of course, we appreciate the kinds of activities you engage in. They do offer us something, but not enough, and in the wrong way. That was too harsh. I know I'm inclined to put these points too strongly, but the feelings moving you are very strong. You think about your homeland and other countries like it. You see vividly what the lives of your countrymen are like, how difficult, how confused they often are. And you come here. See how different things might be. So you feel anguish, indignation, even resentment. I can understand that. Can you? I think so. You see, I've been there. Not to your homeland, but to others nearby. I spent two years there, nearly 20 years ago, working with the local people, building schools, and teaching. It's what inspired, inspires the work I'm doing now. I go back often. I've been to many parts of the developing world, sometimes at times with great suffering. I was in Haiti just after the 2010 earthquake. I saw for myself the kinds of things I suspect move you. Especially electricity, you said. When you said that, I thought, of course. No power, no refrigeration, no lights, food spoiling, hygiene breaking down, desperate people looting under cover of darkness, shortages of medicine, a black market. So I have seen it but only a little. You've seen much more. It's quite natural, quite reasonable, to react as you do. Thank you. I know, I already knew, what we have in mind isn't quite your line, but I wanted the chance to make a case to you by offering our perspective. After all, you're closer to us than almost everyone here. You do understand, at least, some of the important things, and that's rare. So, I'd like to persuade you to go a bit further, to see things as we do, to adopt a more radical view. May I try? Of course. I want to listen. That's why I invited you here. <laughs> Let me start by explaining my reaction, my harsh reaction to your description of your organization and what it does. Why shouldn't we just be happy and appreciate the opportunities for development you provide for us? Because they feel like bits and pieces, leftovers offered by generous people who sit at the rich man's table. The generous ones decide, they say who gets what. There's no systematic attention to our needs. Some areas of some countries might get lucky, simply because they happen to be places where investors can turn a profit. And in the end, given all the history, that way of doing things is unfair, deeply unfair and unjust. I know. I've used strong language again, but it's the right language. I'd like to show you that. From what you said, 
about your own involvement in our world, I think I might have a chance. It'll take time. Is that okay? Yes. So let me start where I think we'll agree completely. Surely, we're both delighted by some recent developments. At last, there's some progress on climate change. Although, who knows how long it will last? Climate clubs to coordinate action, at least among prosperous nations and some threshold countries. But what happens to those of us lower in the economic order? From India on down, if we went ahead with our economic development and just the way the rich countries have done, it would be a disaster. Britain, the USA, Germany, those countries led the way, industrializing, becoming wealthy, very wealthy, by burning lots of coal and gas and oil. And now, of course, they're cutting back, pledging to make a transition to a carbon-free world. China is on a similar curve, but a bit behind. Maybe by mid-century, their emissions will be tapering off. But what about us? We haven't really started yet. Does India now get its turn? Indonesia, Brazil, Central Asia, all of South America, all of Africa? Of course not. We're denied the opportunity others have had. We're in a bind. We can't afford to develop using green technology, not unless we receive aid, a lot of aid. So should we follow your old path and burn coal? Knowing, of course, when we do that, the consequences will come, we'll be hit the hardest. Some leaders in our countries advocate doing that. Our movement thinks they're wrong. There has to be a better way. And of course, my colleagues and I agree with that. You're trying to find that better way. Yes, I know you don't think it's that much better, but it may be the best anyone can do, at least in the world we currently live in. Sorry, I interrupted. Please go on. Of course, in the end, if we did opt out of the global attempt to limit climate change, you could easily stop us. You have the wealth and the power, you can make us an offer we couldn't refuse. Just invade and shut down the coal-fired plants, or do it in a softer way. We'd be flouting the rules of the climate club, so we'd be pariahs, outsiders, forced to pay heavy, heavy tariffs if we tried to t sell to you. So are we coerced, one way or the other, by the guns and the tanks or the soft power of unfavorable trade? Our local champions of coal don't think so. They think developing world could form its own club. After all, there are enough of us. We could follow the course you did, burning coal, industrializing, and then trade with one another. Who knows if that's feasible? Even if it is, it doesn't matter. We can't afford the consequences of doing that, of all those extra emissions. We can't especially. And that dog in the manger attitude would be wrong. Willfully destroying the planet for our descendants? So there's our bind. It seems we have to give up on development and resign ourselves to being left behind, always left behind, us, our children, our grandchildren, down the generations. Our movement was born in realizing we couldn't accept that. We have to try to do better. You put it eloquently. It's the same bind that's moved me as an outsider, an observer, of course, not like <coughs> the inside. <coughs> I wish I had an ideal solution. I wish I could do better than set up some deals here and there, leftovers from the more generous people at the feast. We share the same goals, and to you the solution seems straightforward. The rich countries pay for global development on the basis of renewable sources of energy. A new Marshall Plan, as you call it. It's not so simple. The world doesn't work that way. We have to be realistic and understand what can be done and what can't. 
You want to persuade me that your solution is the right one. I don't want to convince you that my colleagues and I have the answer. I'm sure we don't. But maybe you can help us do better. You can help us improve our efforts to help you. Together we might be able to achieve something. Not something perfect, but something better than what we've offered so far. Not yet. I can't give up yet. I can't compromise before we've worked it through. That would be a betrayal of billions of people and of justice. It would violate principles, deep principles that we have to honor. And in the end, I don't think I'm being unrealistic or any less realistic than you. Your assumptions about how people will behave may be as off target as you think mine are. I don't see why, but go on. I've spoken too forcefully. I, I get carried away about habit. Let me start more slowly. There's a simple idea on which people agree. You see expressions of it all the time, like in the shops here. When they sell fragile things, they often put up a sign. If you break it, you own it. More generally, if you mess something up, you ought to fix it, to the extent it can be fixed. Well, as we agreed, your nation, other rich nations, got to be wealthy by messing up the climate. Now you have the responsibility to do something about it. And we're now trying. Once it became completely clear... Once? You only just noticed? Hasn't it been clear for quite a while now? Clear, but inconvenient. You're right to try this. It did take us too long to face up to the problem, but we are trying to solve it. But surely you don't think a solution involves causing harm to innocent parties, depriving them of chances for a better future. You get rich by mucking things up. You then realize the mess you've made, so you start to limit the damage. You lay down rules for how everyone's supposed to act from now on, rules that confine people who are no part of the caca. They suffer. Meanwhile, you hang on to your ill-gotten gains. Not us. We are trying to help you now. Yes, you're right. I've done it again. Forgive me. But I think you see the point. Why the ones who suffer might think they've been treated unjustly, might think reparations are due. And there's another simple idea, leading to the same conclusion. Imagine a situation in which a whole group of people's lives are threatened. Say they're on a ship that hits a rock and starts to sink. Some of them have the skills and strength to slow down the rate at which water is pouring in, or help the less able ones into lifeboats, others don't. You expect the vigorous people to do the bailing and the lifting. A general thought, when something goes badly, people who can do something about it should. So let's forget about who caused the climate mess. Just focus on which countries have the resources to do something about it. You get the same answer as before. The rich nations can solve the problem without too much pain. The poor ones can't. That may be too quick. Affluent societies have their problems, too. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want to overlook that. Of course, there are many different sources of trouble all around the world. We're going to have to talk about how to balance competing demands later. But all I want to claim for now is that the entire burden can't be borne by us, those whom your road to wealth has left behind. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Philip Kitcher and Evelyn Fox Keller's book, The Season's Altar, How to Save Our Planet in Six Acts. This marks the end of our panel series this year, but I hope you'll join us again in the fall. From Columbia University's Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Ann Levitsky.